Uh, my name is Eugene Goltz. I'm a professor at the LBJ School, and uh, I'm at least somewhat affiliated with both of these esteemed institutions. I'm very grateful that they have uh, uh, opted to uh, sponsor this talk today by my friend Andrew James, who we'll talk about uh, in just a second. But I also want to thank the uh, International Relations and Global Studies Program, the IRGS, for also sponsoring this event. I guess they got to work on their PR merchandise, so they need a, they need a, a device. But um, uh, very glad to see you all here today. Um, uh, Andrew is a senior lecturer in your title? Senior, what's your title? Yeah. Yeah. One, okay. one of they, those. They've got these weird uh, different, uh, titles. different titles. In Doesn't the mean the same. Right. He's a professor. Let's just, let's just say he's a professor uh, at the University of Manchester Business School. Um, We've known each other for like 20 years now. Um, I'm not going to admit to that. It's uh, crazy long, but, but uh, uh, he's been working in uh, innovation and uh, defense industrial uh, affairs uh, from an academic perspective, and then a lot very much in a, in a practical, hands-on perspective in terms of, of working with both uh, companies and governments in Europe and uh, uh, think tanks in the United States as well, probably think tanks in Europe too, it's fair to, fair to say. Um, and uh, uh, he's, he's nestled in this hotbed of innovation research. The, the University of Manchester, of course, has a very long and storied tradition in this area going back to early manufacturing and uh, in the computer industry and um, uh, it's just a, a, a great place to study the kind of stuff that Andrew studies, and I'm very eager to hear more and learn uh, about uh, Andrew's thoughts on emerging technologies and uh, the future of warfare, something I think we all um, would like to learn about to try to prevent. So, okay. Thanks, you Eugene. <clears throat> um, first of all, if I can thank both the uh, Strauss Center and the Clement Center for their uh, uh, invitation to speak to you. Um, I have to say, since I've been in Texas, it's been a little disorientating um, to actually, first of all, see the sun, I'm putting it, to actually be in excess of 70 degrees Fahrenheit in February, I find very disorientating. So I would also like to thank the Clement Center in particular for at least providing me some weather that I recognize today. Uh, so, so I feel much more at home. I also feel a little bit more at home uh, because at least I see a couple of words that I would hope I can speak to, uh, research and innovation. Um, I'm going to also make a decla declaration uh, at the outset. Uh, I'm going to talk about emerging technologies and the future of war. I come from a background of studying research and development, technology and innovation processes. I feel a lot more comfortable talking about emerging technologies than I do about the future of war. And one of the uh, many attractions of coming here and speaking to you is hopefully some of you will be able to fill in some of my ignorance or more on the international security side. Um, some of what I'm going to say is related to a, uh, a project that I am leading at the moment. And this project is jointly funded by the Economic and Social Research Council, which is our equivalent of the NSF, and is jointly funded by the UK Ministry of Defence's Defence Science and Technology Laboratory. 
And because of that, I have to make the normal uh, uh, caveat that these are my own views rather than reflecting the views of any of the funding bodies. So, emerging technologies and the future of war. Radical technological changes is back on the agenda. So, in one of the last speeches that former Defence Secretary Chuck Hagel made, he launched something called the Defence Innovation Initiative, aimed at delivering a third game-changing offset. There are two previous offsets, as many of you will know. There was uh, the first offset strategy and Eisenhower's new look, introducing new forms of nuclear weapon, new forms of delivery system using the most advanced technologies of the day and indeed sponsoring the development of new technologies as a way of te using technology to offset the quantitative military advantage of the Warsaw Pact. We then had a second offset strategy in the 70s and into the 80s which led to many of the military systems that we associate with current US and indeed allied warfare, precision guided musician, uh, munitions, uh, stealth, wide area su surveillance, network forces, so on and so forth. Um, the Defense Innovation Initiative again calls for a new uh, long-range research and development planning program with the aim of helping to identify develop and field breakthrough uh, technologies or technologies from the most cutting edge areas in such fields as robotics, autonomous systems, miniaturization, uh, advanced manufacturing including 3D printing. So this is the third offset and I'm going to spend some time looking at that. Interestingly a similar thought process is going, in, going on in the United Kingdom. Some indeed of the thinking that, that was undertaken within DSTL, they would claim has had an influence upon the Pentagon in thinking about the Defence uh, Innovation Initiative. So in the United Kingdom, the Ministry of Defence is at the moment undergoing a, a thoroughgoing review <coughs> of UK defence science and technology and the potential for new models of military innovation. The defence S&T budget, which has been cut very dramatically in the last uh, decade uh, in favour of uh, support to, uh, to ongoing campaigns, that's being refocused to put much greater emphasis on potentially disruptive emerging science and technology. Um, we have coming up a strategic defence and security review, the, the SD uh, SR process is very much modelled on your quadrennial defence reviews and happens immediately after a general election. So we have a general election coming up in May of this year. Uh, the SDSR will come out of that. And a lot, there's a lot of thinking already going on about emerging technologies and their implications both for the security environment and indeed how they might, might, might be harnessed. There's a lot of thinking going on around that also. So the aim of what I want to, to talk about today is, is several fold. Uh, the main aim is to examine the nature of emerging technologies 
and their potential impact both upon military capability but also on the nature of future war. So that's the key aim. I'm also going to impress upon you that the conditions under which the third offset will develop are very different to the conditions under which the two previous offset strategies took place. And they're different for a number of reasons. First of all, we have multiple security threats. The previous offsets were very much focused upon a very immediate, clear, clearly defined threat, namely the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. I'll also talk a little bit about how the science and technology environment has changed dramatically since these previous offsets. And I'll also talk a little bit about how the sponsorship role of defense, particularly in the US, also in, in the UK as well, how the sponsorship role of defense with regard to emerging technologies is, I would contend, changing uh, somewhat as well. So, emerging technologies. I'm also going to talk, I'm going to spend some time introducing what we mean by emerging technologies, then turning to discussions about what it might mean for the future of warfare. I'm then going to move on to uh, caution you about the dangers of trying to predict any of this. There's a huge amount of uncertainty, and I'll go through some of those causes of uncertainty. And if I have any time left at the end, I'll also talk a little bit about the future or the innovation environment in which we find ourselves in and how it might impact upon some of these issues. So, defining emerging technologies. Um, this little picture here is something which is produced every year by a consultancy called Gartner. And it's called their hype cycle. And there's an important point there. There's an awful lot of hype around emerging technologies for a variety of reasons which I shall come back to. But you can see over here, so at the early stages, a whole lot of technologies which potentially may have implications for the military and which are listed and have been discussed by Hegel and others in the context of this defense uh, innovation initiative. Smart robotics, effective computing, 3D bioprinting, a whole lot of stuff. Okay. I have to say also at this stage, I'm an economist. Don't ask me too much detail on some of these things. I know some about it. But anyway, when one thinks about technologies, it's important to say that, that visions of the military future almost always have a strong technological element. Um, I've looked at a whole host of different futures activities un being undertaken in, the U in, in, in Europe, particularly, and in the US. And if you look at the, the public domain futures documents that are produced by the UK Ministry of Defence's Defence Concepts and Doctrine Centre, uh, their Strategic Trends Programme, the US National Intelligence Council Global Trends Programme, the French Ministry of Defence's equivalent, the European Defence Agency's efforts in this area, some of which I've contributed to, all of them feature very prominently the Im potential impact of emerging technologies. And it's very interesting that the similar technologies come up um, um, most, most times. 
Um, these include, for instance, autonomous systems and artificial intelligence. So in the future, it's said that self-thinking, deciding, and organizing partially sentient robots um, will be able to mimic aspects of human intelligence. And they might have significant implications upon how you fight wars. Also significant man potential manpower implications also. Big data comes up in this area as in most other areas. You know, our information analysis and exploitation capability, both in the field and also in the intelligence uh, uh, area, may lead potentially to better decision making and, in, and enhanced intelligence analytic capability. Developments in nanotechnology and, and other microsystems promise much smaller sensors and more capable of sensors. Human enhancement and augmentation is emphasized a great deal in this literature. So there are a range of technologies, either current or in the far future, that offer considerable scope for enhancing and augmenting both physical and cognitive performance of, of the warfighter. And these include things like prosthetics, drugs, genetic manipulation, a whole host of different things. And if your reaction to the idea of genetically manipulating or, or giving drugs to people to, so that they are more alert, more violent, whatever else, is uh, this raises ethical concerns with you. I am going to come back in a moment to some of the legal and ethical implications of some of these potential technologies. There are other areas too, synthetic biology, social and behavioral sciences. No, big programs about how one can use social and behavioral sciences to better assess and give more novel insights into the intent and behavior of individuals. And unsurprisingly, as I said before, many of these are singled out for attention, both uh, in the, on the part of the Defense Innovation Initiative, but others as well. I think actually, though, it's important before I go any further to actually define what is, and for that matter, what is not, meant by emerging technologies. So up here on the right I have the definition that the UK Defence Technology Plan has. And it thinks of emerging technologies in two ways. First of all, immature technologies in the early proof of principle stage. Um, and then secondly, what they also emphasise is that emerging technologies as far as the military are concerned may also be technologies which are much more mature, but where there's a no novel defense application that's been identified. Um, so far, so straightforward. Uh, there are, however, a whole lot of issues when one starts looking at this. If you look at the reports, think tanks, studies, so on and so forth, about emerging technologies, one of the problems we have is that the way the notion of emerging is used is very different. For some, emerging is the far future. So the uh, uh, Ministry of Defense's uh, Strategic Trends Program looks out to 2050 and beyond. For others, emerging technologies are almost about to be fielded. And it's very important to think and be aware of the timescales in which, in which we're looking at here. There's also an extremely important distinction that we could make, uh, we should make, and that's between technologies 
and weapon systems. Technologies, of course, underpin weapon systems, but they are rarely in and of themselves uh, weapon systems. So therefore, nanotechnologies may be important to the military, but they're only going to be important if we can find ways of actually embedding them into weapon <coughs> systems themselves. And when I think about technologies, I have in mind these underpinning technologies, less so the weapon system. And yet we know that the journey from technology, certainly from science, but certainly the journey from technology to fielding a weapon system is a long and tricky one. And again, I'll come back to that point in a minute. What is technologically possible does not necessarily land up in fielded weapon systems. And another point I want to make, and it comes to, down to this point, that more mature technologies can also have significant implications in new combinations for the conduct of warfare. Uh, one only needs to think of Afghanistan, IEDs, the combination of mobile phone technology uh, to, to trigger these things can have significant implications upon warfare. And that takes us back to one of the uh, fathers of the field in which I work, the economist Joseph Schumpeter. And Schumpeter emphasized greatly that uh, innovation can very much be about new combinations of existing technologies. And that can be important too. So, this is what I mean by emerging technologies, and I've also cautioned about some of the challenges we have in terms of definition. Let's turn now to, to the core of what, uh, what I've been asked to speak about, which is emerging technologies and, and the future of war. Now, of course, most technologies that, that, that emerge represent incremental improvements to what went before. And they may well enhance the competencies of the military, but they tend to en enhance the competencies of the military along dimensions that the military have traditionally valued. And these kind of technological developments represent relatively few challenges to the military, although as we know, inserting new technologies into mature platforms can, uh, can be difficult, and I'll come back to that point later. What I think really generates interest and concern are new technologies that are radical, that can destroy existing military competences of one kind and another, and can create new sources of military advantage along dimensions which maybe have not been traditionally valued or alternatively have been poorly understood by the military. That tends to be the focus of attention and concern. And these are of concern for a number of reasons. Um, <clears throat> emerging technologies may have a potentially profound impact upon the security environment. In the pursuit of power, for instance, William McNeil charts the consequences of technological change on the balance of power over an extended uh, historical uh, discussion. In War and Power in the 21st Century, Paul Hurst analyzed how new military technologies change the way that wars are fought and how power relations can change as a result. So radical new technology can profoundly change the balance of power and or it can introduce new forms of insecurity. And of course, 
<coughs> the most dramatic illustration of the impact of the combination of new technologies into new weapon systems was the Allied development of the atomic and hydrogen bomb during the second hydrogen bombs during the Second World War, and then the subsequent deployment of, of similar capabilities by, by the Soviet Union. And it's also a commonplace that today's emerging technologies are likely to lead to the proliferation of novel disruptive threats. As I will come back to this point later on, but some of these technologies, many of these technologies, are not simply the under the control and ownership of militaries, and certainly not under the control and ownership of the US military. Synthetic biology is often uh, uh, singled out as an example in which there is already a very uh, large DIY community of people who work on synthetic biology, and it is argued that th that's only a step along the way to a potential ability to use that in a whole variety of, of novel ways to generate areas of insecurity. So new technologies can have significant implications upon the security environment. New technologies can also have significant implications for the likelihood of conflict. And these can go both ways. So, of course, the emergence of the hydrogen bomb arguably reduced the threat of at least overt state-on-state -state conflict during the Cold War because the costs of conflict were so potentially so high as to make direct state-on-state -state conflict uh, untenable. Against that, of course, um, it's, it's argued that the increased availability and capability of remotely operated vehicles and their increasingly autonomous successors may well reduce increase the likelihood of conflict uh, <clears throat> simply by reducing the threshold for, of, of you, for their use because it, they may well reduce the political risk of, of military casualties. Likewise, of course, cyber warfare, the, anonymi the, the, the anonymity provided by cyberspace until we get to that point of actually having uh, the analytical capabilities to, to, to unveil uh, 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 who, who is engaged in cyber attacks potentially can, can uh, reduce the risk of attribution of, of, of attribution of retribution uh, attribution and retribution and so potentially may increase the attractiveness of making an attack by by a potential adversary and indeed in a in a, in a very thought-provoking book uh, by uh, Christopher Coker from the London School of Economics called The Future of War, which he wrote about a decade ago now. Coker talks about what he calls the re-enchantment of war in the 21st century. And his argument is that developed societies are likely to continue with war in the future because technological change may make it uh, less costly, potentially even more rational than it was. His argument is that information, the information revolution, the use of autonomous systems, a variety of other things, may reduce the cost of warfare. The third reason why we should think about emerging technologies is, of course, because they can have rather uh, profound implications uh, for, uh, for structures. A new technology can provide new and more effective military capability and therefore impact force structures. Precision munitions, of course, not least those using GPS technology, are a good example of this. 
So their increased accuracy has led to a reduction of the number of aircraft required to attack targets, and of course the substitution of heavy bombers for, for lighter fighter bombers. New technologies also can rede redefine the way that warfare is conducted or indeed create entirely new types of warfare. So technology and military doctrine are, are closely coupled and interdependent, of course. And if you look at a whole variety of different uh, modes of warfare, blitzkrieg, the air-land battle, carrier strike, they're all examples of how a combination of relatively new technologies combined with organizational and doctri doctrinal change led to very different ways of, of, of warfare. The revolution in military affairs, so-called, provides another example of this. Um, the internet and its widespread application, of course, has also created the possibility of a new form of warfare, cyber warfare, which was hardly imaginable less than 20 years ago. New technologies, of course, can also raise profound legal, ethical, and moral issues. Um, it's the case, whether we look at warfare or whether we look at medicine, that law is likely to lag the pace of technological development. So some areas of emerging technology and their use, autonomy, some human enhancements, some activities in cyberspace would, I contend, uh, are likely to pose a significant challenge to the established body of international humanitarian law, uh, whether that's just ad bellum or just in bello. So the acceptable criteria for initiating war and indeed the nature of its conduct. And I guess the development of autonomous weapon systems is one striking example of this. If you have a truly autonomous weapon system in which the human is no longer directly in the loop, then if that autonomous weapon system were to attack and kill large number of civilians, where would the legal responsibility and accountability for the actions of that autonomous vehicle lie? Would it be with the operator? Would it be with the state that chose to use it. Perhaps it should be with the software engineer who generated the code. You know, this leads to some very profound legal questions. It also, emerging technologies can also have profound ethical and moral questions associated with them. I think the most striking example of this is in the use of biotechnology. So again, Christopher Coker argues that it may, in, in, in the not-so-far future, be possible to enhance, modify, or alter our genes. And that uh, in, in, in a variety of ways. And he argues, well, we may in the future be able to enhance the things that as a species we've tended to have done well. And he extends that argument to say that, well, unfortunately, one of the things we've tended to have done particularly well over our existence as a species is to wage war upon one another. So he then speculates at the philosophical level as to uh, what enhancements of this or, or modifications of this kind may, may mean. And indeed in, in his latest book, which I also recommend to you 
uh, is, is a very good read and very thought-provoking. Interestingly, his latest book is called Warrior Geeks, which gives a flavor of the way that he thinks that the world is going to go. And he there warns that the technological change is threatening to create a battle space that has no place for a whole variety of historical human qualities, whether it's courage, sacrifice, honor, and even more fundamental categories such as subjectivity, indeed agency and ethics as well. So these are some of the reasons why we should think about, um, about the role of technologies and the, uh, emerging technologies and their link to the future conduct of warfare. It's interesting that if you look across the literature, you can summarize what most people, what, what most of the uh, thinkers in this area uh, conceptualize as future, the future of war in, in one of three types. The future of war for some is going to be fought in cyberspace. For others, the future of war is going to be fought by autonomous, armed, air, ground, and naval vehicles. Peter Singer is a good example of this argument. And for others, uh, the future of warfare is going to be uh, fought by troops who are enhanced or augmented by drugs, by genetic manipulation, or by exoskeletons. And that's a view that Christopher Coker puts forward. For me, I find it very interesting that implicitly or explicitly, almost all these studies, and also including studies undertaken by a number of wa prominent Washington think tanks, such as the Center for a New American Security, almost all of them seem to have an implicit or explicit assumption that the future of warfare is going to be state-on-state -state warfare. And that's the future security environment. But as I said at the outset, conditions for this so-called third offset are very different to the 1950s, the 1960s. We now have multiple security threats. And there is surprisingly little discussion in much of this futurist literature about, about such things as asymmetric warfare, and indeed how, if at all, any of these uh, um, uh, future systems, futuristic systems, may be able to deal with the low-tech conflict uh, that we tend to see across the world, and indeed which we faced for the last decade, using irregular forces in failed states. Uh, these, uh, this is very much, and certainly the US literature is very much about state-on-state -state conflict, and of course, whilst without necessarily always saying it, is about conflict with a particular state, which is China. And I think from a European perspective, therefore, this may lead to a further widening in the gap between European conceptions of the future of warfare and US conceptions of the future of warfare, because the Europeans, by and large, tend to have a very different view of the future security threats and indeed also the threat of China. I think there are some interesting issues for the alliance, uh, amongst other things, going forward. So these are some of the issues about emerging technologies. But I want to finish up. I've got about another 10 minutes, Eugene? Sure. Tell me when to stop.
I want to finish up with a slightly more cautionary note. Here is a famous quote from Niels Bohr. So the phys physicist Niels Bohr once said, prediction is very difficult, especially if it's about the future. And I'd like to spend some time just uh, thinking about some of the sources of uncertainty that surround the whole uh, set of issues around emerging technologies and the future of war. And we should be very careful indeed about the claims made for these technologies and the impact that they may have. There is a great deal of danger that the analysis of emerging technologies degenerates into some form of technological determinism. You know, the idea that the emergence of a new technology leads inevitably to change and that technology is necessary and sufficient to drive innovation has been widely discredited by those who study innovation. Both those who study innovation more generally and also those who study uh, military innovation in particular. And of course, there's an understandable tendency for those who analyze emerging technologies to focus on those technologies. But I would contend that military innovation is about a lot more than emerging technologies. And there is an extremely long and tricky road from the emergence of a technology to its actually having an impact on military capability. So why is that? So the first set of, there are a whole uh, series of reasons and sources of uncertainty about the future. So uncertainty is a key characteristic of technological change. And it essentially stems from the difficulties of ex-ante assessment about the rate and timing of a technology's development. And there are plenty of spectacular examples or about, or, and failed predictions about technological development. Um, Bill Gates, although interestingly he claims he never says this, Bill Gates is often quoted as once having said, 640K ought to be enough for anybody. Um, in the military field, a British training manual from 1907 stated categorically, quote, it must be accepted as a principle that the rifle, effective as it is, cannot replace the effect produced by the speed of the horse, the magnetism of the charge, and the terror of cold steel, unquote. Of course, that assertion did not survive the first weeks of the First World War. And Marshal Ferdinand Foch uh, was reported as saying in 1911, aeroplanes are interesting toys, but of no military value. There is a huge amount of uncertainty surrounding emerging technologies. Some technologies fail to deliver on the early performance claims of their advocates. They might fail because the engineering and technological challenges arise in and of themselves and also in translating them into weapon systems might be so great that the costs in terms of excessive time and resource make them untenable. Equally, of course, some technologies may fail to deliver because they reflect what in uh, UK procurement is described as a conspiracy of optimism. And there's a conspiracy of optimism between those who have a vested interest in a particular technology and they oversell its military potential. 
academic grant holders and researchers in government defense laboratories may boost the technology to ensure their own funding. Entrepreneurs may boost the military implications of an emerging technology as a way of getting hold of uh, free defense funding to support their pet entrepreneurial ventures. Experts in think tanks may oversell the potential of a technology to sell books or to access funding or to get access to government. And of course, uh, alongside this conspiracy of optimism is the fact that failure is normal, natural, and indeed desirable. Technologies also can be superseded by other technologies that are better or cheaper or faster to develop. So only some technologies reach a stage where they're sufficiently mature that they're even considered for transition into military, uh, military capability. And at which point, of course, we then enter the, uh, fa the area of defense procurement, defense acquisition, and we know very much about the existence of uh, the so-called valley of death between the funding of uh, and the development of programs through, through, through S&T and then bringing them into uh, procurement programs for fielded, uh, fielded weapon systems. There's a second reason why we should be cautious about some of these predictions. And that's around what, uh, uh, so, uh, 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 what one might call the social shaping of emerging technologies. So an emerging technology, its funding, the trajectory it takes, uh, the rate it's adopted into use, is shaped by a variety of actors. There's nothing inevitable about the trajectory of any of these new technologies or how they will or won't be used. And the study of military innovation emphasizes the critical role, of course, of political and bureaucratic politics amongst both military and civilian actors in selecting or, of course, not selecting particular technologies. So this explains why um, uh, we see that technologies may reside in different countries but be adopted at different rates. The United Kingdom, of course, wasn't the only country to possess the knowledge that underpinned the emergence of radar, but there were certain reasons, political decisions, military decisions, other decisions, that led to our adoption of that uh, more rapidly than in some other countries. And then the third element of, an, of, of um, here that we need to think about in, in, in terms of impacts upon um, uh, these kind of predictions is the link between technology and military innovation. Military innovation is about a great deal more than emerging technology. Uh, and the idea that military capability can somehow be reduced to the fielding of weapon systems with superior technology is plainly wrong. And indeed, we've seen this, I would contend, over the last decade. So history shows that improving military effectiveness does not only require technology, but it requires other kinds of organizational and doctrinal innovation, complementary innovations to go alongside them. So for all these different reasons, one should be cautious about the future, uh, the future pace and rate of change and adoption of these technologies. And by way of conclusion, I just want to, want to make a few points. So I want to finish where I started with the Defence Innovation Initiative. Um, 
I think the conditions under which this third offset will develop are, as I've argued, very different indeed to the 1950s or indeed the 1970s. We face multiple security threats, and yet the utility of some of these emerging technologies and the military visions that they uh, seek to underpin is not necessarily clear-cut. Equally, the nature of the scientific and technological environment has changed dramatically. It is the case now that defence is no longer the single source of emerging technologies. Unlike the 50s and the 60s in which US defence R&D and procurement spending led to the emergence of whole classes of new technologies, semiconductors being one example, we're in a very different environment in which the role of defence as a sponsor for advanced technologies is changing and in some of these fields, fields I would contend, defence finds itself becoming a follower rather than a leader in the development of these technologies. And you hear statements from former Secretary Hagel when he was launching the Defence Innovation Initiative about the need to reach out to non-traditional sources of technology, pleading, I think pleading is not too strong a word, with Silicon Valley to engage more strongly with uh, the military, uh, the business of the military. So to finish up, clearly emerging technologies can have significant implications for military capability, but my final point is the path from technological emergence to military capability is a long and uncertain one. It may be interesting in 30 years to go back to some of the predictions being made today by some of the advocates of some of these technologies and see whether we can find quotes as striking as that by Bill Gates. Thank you very much.